What Are You Made Of? It's Mike C-Rock. Welcome to What Are You Made Of? Every episode of this podcast is centered around building ourselves and the people in our lives to reach our full potential. I hope that the experiences and stories of success from these conversations can give you rocket fuel to reach new heights and help you answer the question, what are you made of? What are you made of? I want to remind you that the Rocket Fuel book is available at MikeCRock.com forward slash book. That's MikeCROC.com forward slash book. Go get yourself a copy and subscribe to the What Are You Made Of podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. If you like watching these, it's available on YouTube at my channel, Mike C-Rock Scirocco. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of What Are You Made Of with your boy, Mike C-Rock. Guys, thanks for coming on to the uh, ride of the What Are You Made Of movement, the rocket fuel concept. And just to remind everyone, what rocket fuel concept is all about is turning setbacks, letdowns, negativity, all of it into rocket fuel for your future. We talk about rocket fuel instead of fuel because rocket fuel is the only thing that gets you into outer space. Rocket fuel is a nasty substance until you use it. And once you use it, wonderful things happen. And uh, when we get into space, we're away from other people's problems that are thrown at us. We get to pick the problems that we solve. And uh, that's what it's all about. So by the way, go get your copy of Rocket Fuel right now at Mike C-Rock with no K, MikeCRock.com forward slash book, MikeCRock.com forward slash book. I am going to change millions of lives with this book. And it's all about the people's lives that I change. And uh, I will not let you down. So go get that book, share it with your friends and family. And uh, today, guys, we have a guest, my buddy Dan Caldwell. And uh, if you guys have ever heard of Tap Out Clothing from the Mixed Martial Art Clothing line, it started back in late 90s when I was in college. I remember it. Uh, he started selling it out of the back of his car, eventually became the USC's official clothing sponsor, and ultimately sold hundreds of millions of dollars in apparel and licensed goods. Dan has been featured and interviewed in many popular business shows, including Fox Business, Bloomberg, CNBC, just to name a few. And uh, also CNBC's business and their special fistful of dollars. Uh, you also are profiled of Tony Robbins infomercial. Jesus, Sukes, man. Forbes magazine. I mean, do I have to go on? Uh, <laughs> like all this shit, man. I'm like, I, I got to start accomplishing more stuff, man. Uh, but anyway, he recently sold Tap Out to New York, which we're going to talk about, a New York-based company. We're going to talk about that here shortly. Uh, Dan, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. One of the things I'm really excited about that you do, because uh, my wife and I are scheduled to come on, is Pretty and Punk podcast. So uh, I, I just want to let you know I'm looking forward to that. My, I told my wife, get her get her shit together and get ready. <laughs> uh, but what are you made of, man? We start the show all we talking about. What are you made of? What are you made of, Dan? Never quit. Never quit, man. I've had, you know, I just, I and I think, um, you know, I was, I felt like a lot of insecurities at some point, but I've used those. I've learned to use those as my rocket fuel. Uh, I think everybody has insecurities and it's just how you, how you deal with them that makes the difference between the people that are successful and the people that aren't. And I've learned to, at some point, you know, it was a hindrance. It was something that I wouldn't, I didn't think I would get past, but I've learned to, but you know, along the way, I learned to change that and turn the story and, and make that my rocket fuel. Now, look, insecurities are just when you're lacking knowledge on something because you then that leads to lack of confidence, right? And one of the questions I had written down here, because I always, I always uh, started writing down these uh, questions here, because sometimes I get so involved in listening to the people that are on my podcast. Mm-hmm. And then when they're done talking, I'm just sitting there like trying to analyze what they said. So I, yeah. I keep a little list here just, but one of my, my questions that I was going to ask you was, it was about the thoughts that went through your head. If you can recall when you were starting the brand tap out, because I have a clothing line. I want to start with uh, like similar to like Hugo Boss slash Under Armour, some kind of like active wear stuff that I'm thinking about. I think that Rocket Fuel Lifestyle could be a great clothing brand. 
I have no idea. I'm committed to doing it, but I have no idea where to start. I have tons of thoughts going through my head with it. I wanted to ask you about that. And did that have something to do with the insecurities? Uh, I mean, a little bit, but in, my insecurity started young when, you know, I grew up uh, in, you know, we were lower middle class, I would say. Uh, but we, I just, my parents, I, luckily I had amazing parents, which was great. They always pushed me and were, you know, treated me like I was the best. But when I got to school, things were different because I didn't have the right clothes and, you know, we didn't live in a, in a nice neighborhood. And, uh, and I lived in kind of an all minority neighborhood and I was, I was, you know, one of the, one of the few white kids in the neighborhood. And so I got picked on a lot and, but I learned to become friends with a lot of them. But I think we always had these kind of messed up cars. I'd always call them, we would call them like that. We had names for all of them, like the yellow lemon and the green grenade and the blue bomb. And so when I would, my parents would drive me to school, I would beg them to drive me, drop me off around the corner just so that my friends wouldn't see the cars. And so I think that's where those insecurities kind of started and never feeling like I was good enough. I was, I was pretty much one of the shorter guys in my class. You know, I, I'm about five, seven now, but you know, compared to some of the other kids in the school, I was, I was usually the shortest guy in the class. And so I always had this insecurity of being beat up and not being, being able to defend myself. And so I started, that's how I got into martial arts early and boxing. So I just always tried to feel out how I could fight off those insecurities. You know, how could I overcome them? And, uh, and I think that kind of led to me becoming a police officer. So I was actually a police officer for, for years. And then I ended up, I, this was my dream job. I wanted to be a police officer coming out of high school. And I, and I'd always been kind of an entrepreneur too. I'd started small businesses when I was young carnivals. I'd had this carnival where I would have all these kids come over to my, my house and I would charge them, you know, a quarter to play this game or try to knock the pins down in the box you know, all these different games that we'd play, or I, I, I became a magician. But the point of being a magician wasn't to be a magician. It was to charge all my friends to come over and watch my magic show. And uh, so I'd always been an entrepreneur at heart. When I was 14 years old, I started my own DJ business. They were, they called in, in uh, my junior high, they were asking for a DJ because we couldn't afford it. We went to the small prep school, I ended up actually getting kicked out of at some point, but uh, it was a small prep school. And uh, they didn't have the money to afford a DJ. So they say so they you know, in the morning announcements, they asked if anybody knew anybody that was a DJ. And me and my friend said, oh, we're DJs, even though we had, we weren't DJs, we didn't have any equipment, we didn't have any, we didn't know anything really about DJing, but we liked music. So we ran to uh, the music store, bought some records, borrowed our parents' equipment, and then next thing you know, we're DJs. And, uh, and so we, we always figured out a way. But as I got older and I, you know, I wanted to become a police officer to kind of help other people like I was, um, I, that was my dream job. And I ended up getting fired for, uh, from that job. And I think that's when I just hit my lowest low. And I ended up finding my way back to uh, law enforcement, but um, it just wasn't the same. It wasn't the department that I wanted to be on. And being a police officer wasn't good enough because I wanted to be on the, the right department. And so I, I, I was dealing with a lot at that time. I think that a lot of insecurities were creeping up and not sure if I would ever be able to do what I wanted to do or ever reach the goals that I set forth for myself. And eventually, um, you know, my friend came to me and my best friend at the time who we were both decided to become police officers together. And we were training. Uh, we were we started training in jujitsu together. So we were training with the Gracies after we watched the very first UFC. We went and found out stuff. Uh, seeked out the Gracies and ended up training with them. Uh, this is in 1993 or four. 
And uh, we, he said, do you want to start a clothing company? And now we know nothing about printing t-shirts. And even to this day, I know nothing about printing a t-shirt. Like if you put me in a room and you said, hey, you have to print the, these hundred shirts or we're going to have to cut off your pinky. Like I would just, you know, put my hand out there because it would just, I, I, I have no clue. I do not understand how to print a t-shirt. I'm not a t-shirt printing guy. That's not, I wasn't our strong point. We felt like our strong point at that point was just our ideas. We just had this, we were like idea guys when we were together, you know, I, I felt like it was the perfect partner and we just threw a bunch of ideas out and we always had ideas rolling through our head and we'd call each other in the middle of the night. Hey, I have this idea. What do you think about this? Or we could put it in this magazine or, you know, my friend's doing this. And what if we put it on his car? You know, let's get, he's got like a NASCAR. So we always just had, we were idea guys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so we we're both police officers at the time and idea guys. And we just said, let's just start it. Let's just do it. And uh, we just put one foot in front of the other and said, hey, we have a t-shirt company. And it was very small at the beginning, just selling to our friends at uh, jujitsu events at these like small jujitsu events that they would hold at high schools. And we would just set up a table, uh, you know, four by six or whatever the size those fold out tables are and put out some T-shirts and put out some hats. And that's how we started. And did you what was the vision at that time for the company? Like, what was the end game? Like, it wasn't it, it, I mean, obviously, it's always about some somewhat about money, but not obviously there was more to it than that. You know, I would like to say that we saw the hundred million or five hundred million dollar company we became, but we did always have this idea to think that where we had talked and and talked through this that we thought, you know what, this could really be something big. This sport is on the. I mean, it was illegal at that time. You got to remember, this mm-hmm. isn't like what we see the UFC today. The UFC was basically illegal. Like you could not throw an event in anywhere except for two different states. And those two different, uh, the state that they were throwing them in was like in Denver. They, they had a good one in Denver, Colorado. And so there were the, different states started to open up at that time. And they were also playing with throwing it outside of the United States just so that they would have be under the same restraints that they would be in uh, and restrictions in, in the States. So it was, so you couldn't see it like you see it today. So a lot of people would say, Oh yeah, that's, that's a great idea. People were actually telling us that was, this is a horrible idea. Like this is about to go away. Like you're not going to see the UFC here pretty soon. Like it's going to be gone. They're going to, it's going to be a totally illegal. And so, but, but we saw something else in it. We saw that every time we showed this to somebody on television, that they couldn't help themselves, that all they wanted to do was watch it. You know, they couldn't, they would call their friend, oh man, have you seen this? Is this even illegal? I can't believe they're doing this. This is insane. We've never seen anything like that. So we saw the excitement that people had when they got around this sport. And even then, that back then they called it No Holds Barred or NHB. And so it didn't have that MMA title yet. And, uh, but we just saw something else in it. And we always believe that if this went mainstream, that if all of a sudden they did start allowing it in, um, on television and that if, um, it became a little more uniformed and like a sport that it could be the biggest sport on the planet. And so we always held that close to us, but at that time, you know, it's hard to see when you're making, you go to, you know, a show and make 200, 300 bucks, you know, to be able just enough to be able to pay for your $200 table that you have sitting there, you know, that we were able to sell. Mm-hmm. And I can remember our first event where I actually competed in the event and my partner Charles was set up on even a smaller table, like because the place was so small, they only had one or two mats where you could actually compete on. It was a YMCA in San Bernardino. And 
we were set up on this maybe a two by three table. And when I say two by three, that's stretching it. It's really, really small. And I think we had four shirts folded up tight. So you could only see the design on the back. And then one hat and a beanie sitting on top of them, literally on top of the shirts themselves. And uh, we just, you know, we didn't sell any shirts at the beginning. And then there was this guy, John Lewis, who had fought in an event, not the UFC, but like this offshoot event. And he had taken one of the Gracies um, to the distance. He had taken them the distance. And people hadn't seen that before. They always expected the Gracies to just like run through people. And this, they didn't know that John Lewis was training in jujitsu with another jujitsu black belt. And so he was, he had, he was very versed in Brazilian jujitsu and he was, and he was good and athletic and he had previous martial arts, other martial arts. So he was the perfect guy to really do well in a, in a sport like that. And uh, so he ended up taking this Gracie the distance. Well, he happened to be there with some of his students and he came over and tried on a shirt and just out of the you know goodness of his heart, because he's such a great guy, you know, since we've become really good friends, but um, he, he bought a few shirts and he put one on and that like changed the game. Like all of a sudden, John Lewis is wearing a shirt. John Lewis is wearing a shirt. He's walking around <laughs> and then somebody else comes up and buys a shirt and somebody else buys a hat. And next thing you know, we're selling through most of our stuff by the end of the show. So uh, that was kind of a, uh, that was a boost for us, you know, that type of thing, just thinking that. John Lewis and his team are wearing our shirts and, um, you know, that's kind of where it started. And then kind of right out of the gate, we knew other, we were training with guys who were fighting in the UFC. So they, it was, it, we were able to get a hold of people who were fighting in the UFC and offer them like three or $400 to wear our stuff inside the fight. And so that was a big boost of confidence to us when you see these guys walking into this show on pay-per-view and you know we're this little tiny company i'd say a couple of years in we would laugh about maybe 3 or 4 years in we'd laugh about that we're we look like this huge company on television because every time you watch ufc we got two or three fighters in there wearing these right. pictures right right but we I literally pulled our money together off credit cards to pay these guys and some of them <laughs> I can remember Pat Militich became champion and we owed him like a bonus because he had won and became champion in his, this is our very first guys in the UFC. I think it took us two years to pay him off, like to oh. literally pay the $2,500 oh. that we owed him. And, uh, but we, you know, we just kept making little paint. Here's 300 bucks, Mont, his manager, Monty Cox. Here's 300 bucks. Here's 200 bucks. Here's 150 bucks. You know, we, until we finally got him paid off. But it was just, um, you know, it was just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And we were like this mouse in front of the flashlight. We look like this huge company because we're all over this television show. And uh, we have different guys wearing our stuff at, at competitions. And they, we had patches for their geese when they fought in geese. They would sew these patches on their geese. And we looked like this huge company. And we were literally living, you know, hand to mouth. And barely, we had, Charles had quit his job. I was basically fitting the whole, all the bills and and because i was paying that out of my um you know my salary for you know as a police officer and we were just barely making it you know rob and peter to pay paul most of the time i wanted to take a quick break here to remind you that my book rocket fuel is available for sale now at mikecrock.com forward slash book that's mikecrock.com forward slash book go get a copy and share it with your friends and family it will change lives guys i will not let you down now back to the show and did, were you getting impatient and did you ever feel like quitting at any any point? I think because I know, oh, of course we felt like, I don't say quit, that we never felt like quitting. That's a, that's a strong word. Well, but I just like, just like, just like at some point, dude, we got to figure out how to make some money here. It was, it was like, definitely disappointment. Um, 
there were times when, I mean, I would, I broke my windshield. I was driving in a, um, after I quit my job and I can remember I was listening to, I did totally remember where I was. I was driving to LA to pick up some clothes because our printer was out in LA. And I mean, we were so, ooh, I get emotional starting to think about it. Um, the, uh, we were just in a really bad place. We owed a lot of people money. We were, we, were, we needed shirts that we didn't have. Our site, we were like an early e-commerce site, you know, because it's 1999. Mm-hmm. We we're fairly early e-commerce site. And we were only online. That's pretty much, that was the only place you could buy us pretty much. There was a few different stores, but mostly, mostly only online. And uh, we were starting to build our online following, getting a lot of sales, but we didn't have a, we didn't have a cart that would stop sales if, um, that would control inventory. So if we sold 10 shirts or let's say a sh- three shirts, it was like three shirts. If we sold a style and we sold three of them and we only had two of them. It would still sell that third shirt to somebody. So there was a lot of that going on. We're like, oh my gosh, we got to get this shirt in and we need that shirt. And we need this shirt, but we can't afford to print them. And so it was a pretty emotional time. And I, you know, I had young kids and I can remember I had, I was driving in this thousand dollar van that we had, that we had bought at an auction. We had it fixed a little bit, you know, get the dents out and stuff. And then we painted it all black and put some big, huge tap out stickers on it. And I was driving to LA and listening to lose yourself by Eminem. And I was just so into the song. Like I was, I'm crying and tears are coming down my, my face. And I'm just, I'm yelling out loud. People probably looking in my window thinking I'm crazy. I'm in traffic driving to LA and I punched the windshield. It's hard, just like out of just not anger, frustration, and just all kinds of things running through me. And I cracked the windshield and I was like, oh my gosh, there's not another problem. You know, now I got to crack windshield too. And uh, just, it just felt like the problems were never going to end. So a lot of times not quit. I don't think we ever had quit in ourselves. We always, I think the little wins are what help you keep moving forward. I can remember when a UFC fight would come on and we'd have like two fighters in there. It just kind of like fixed everything for at least 24 hours. Like all the bad things, all the bad shit that was going on, at least for 24 hours, we were good because we had these two fighters who were fighting in the UFC. We knew some sales might come out of that, hopefully. If people could find us, because the only way people could literally find us is if they saw the UFC and then they happened to have a black belt or they happened to type in tap out, maybe they were found on a search engine. But, you know, it wasn't the the search engines were the same back then. Um, I'm not even sure if Google was around. I don't think so. Well, uh, when's the, when was the turning point where it like sparked? Because look, as you get someplace, eventually it starts to snowball out of, good, out of control in a good way. So when was that moment? Like I know the guy, one guy, John, started wearing the stuff. But then like when did you really start making money? Well, yeah, we were always started to make more money. But what people don't know when you're in a product-based business, um, it's never enough because – and this will always be a problem. I don't care how much money you make because I, I was – when we were doing $100 million, it was still a problem. Um, you're always going to have a problem with inventory. So it's always trying to – Make enough money to advertise. You got to set aside money for advertising, set aside money to buy product. And at that time, it was always, a, uh, we were always chasing product, always trying to buy, you know, create, buy more products so that we could fill our inventory. And so even when well, I can, I can remember sitting down with somebody and somebody goes, Oh, how much you guys make? And I said, uh, I think we did about $900,000 last year. And I'm living in an apartment with no money, no money to show for it because he had to like sit me down. I'd never, I mean, I feel like I'm a fairly smart person. Not definitely not on. I'm on the 
lower scales far, as far as uh, I never went to uh, uh, university, but I feel like I'm a smart person, be able to figure out problems and uh, st- definitely street smart as a police officer, you know, always, always being able to figure out those problems that we've run into somehow. But um, I, I had never figured this issue out. Why are we making so much money? We never have money in our pockets. And I sat down with somebody who was very versed in business, who had made hundreds of millions of dollars. And he said, this is why you're not, you don't have any money in your pocket because you guys are growing at 300% a year. So every time you guys make money, to just be able to deal with your sales that are coming through, you have to put X amount of dollars into inventory. And because of that, if have you looked lately at how much you have in inventory? What do you, what's sitting on your shelves? I said, no, I don't have that number. He goes, you don't have that number. You don't have the number of what, the, uh, the inventory levels that you have in your own warehouse. And I said, no, I don't. I said, he goes, well, that is the first thing that you have to fix. And sure enough, you know, we had like $2.4 million in inventory or something (laughs) stupid. And I realized that we really did have money. You know, the company did have money. We weren't as poor as my, as we were thinking we were because we didn't, we weren't able to issue each other paychecks. Really. I would pay his bills and a couple of my bills. And that was it that we didn't, there was no extra cash flow money. Um, there was, we, every once in a while, when we went and sold at events, we would divvy up a few dollars. So we each had a couple hundred dollars in our pocket, but that was it. And so it really took to 2005 when, or 2006, when the ultimate fighter happened, that really, that was a game changer for us. Overnight, we went from doing 10 orders a day to doing hundreds of orders a day, literally overnight. And, uh, and even though we were doing millions of dollars already at that time, um, like I said, there was no money in our pockets. And so, you know, poor me, we're doing millions of dollars in this company, but I was living in an apartment driving a thousand dollar van and a, I think a thousand dollar Pontiac uh, Grand Dam that I bought at the auction. So I didn't have any money. And, uh, but we had this, we had, we had a fairly nice warehouse that was starting to grow and, uh, and things were happening. You know, we always felt excited that things were happening. We always had things happening that I think that was definitely contributed to our mental health. The hope, the hope, right? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The hope of uh, what what was to come. Um, what determined when you decided to sell it? What determined the you know selling the company or not? A lot of that came with my partner had got killed by a drunk driver the year before. Uh, I know that. Okay. And so, if you, I don't know if you ever done anything with a friend that you just like you started this journey together, and after that, it just wasn't the same. Like I didn't. Uh, we were doing a lot of things together, collecting cars, collecting watches, collecting, you know, memories and life and building this company. And it just wasn't, nothing was the same anymore. Everything changed overnight. And as much as I tried to put a smile on my face, I just knew things would never be the same in that company. And uh, my excitement levels would never be the same. My energy to push forward in that company. I tried to like convince myself that I was going to do this for him. You know, I was going to keep pushing forward for him. But at the end of the day, when I'd lay down at night, I'd just be like, I don't even want to do this anymore. And I just wasn't feeling like the same person. I wasn't feeling happy about it. And I just, up until that time, I'd always felt like I had done everything that I ever wanted to do. You know, I wanted to become a police officer. I became a police officer. I wanted to um, start this clothing company. We started this clothing company and certain things along the way during that clothing company. I said, I was going to get this fighter, whatever it took. We'd end up getting that fighter. You know, just, I just always said, if I say I'm want to do something, I'm going to do it. And I did it. And, and I, when that happened, I was just like, I, 
don't want to do this anymore. I want to go find something new to do. And that led to trying to find a buyer. Now talk about setbacks, man. When when that happens to your business partner, best friend. I, by the way, I have a large mortgage division uh, for Nations Lending that uh, I operate with three of my best friends and my little brother. And so I can feel you like we've been in, we've been in elementary school all the way up till college together till now. So I can feel that, and I that hit me a little bit when you said that. That's definitely a setback in what we're talking about. And good uh, bad things happen to good people. So how are you using that now at all to kind of fuel what you have going forward? Well, I think, you know, where I find my fuel now, and of course, my best friend too, I always, uh, I always wear a necklace that reminds me of him. I don't have it on now because I'm in the house, but um, every day when I leave, I have a necklace on that has his name on it, reminds me of him. And, uh, and of course, he's always, I always feel like he's with me, like my angel on my shoulder. He watches over my kids. But um, I think today, um, lots of times, I, 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 well, a lot, I'm driven by entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and you know, what Steve Jobs was able to do, these entrepreneurs, not these, these entrepreneurs that aren't these one hit wonders, you know, that I, I don't ever want, I want tap out to totally define everything that I was and who I will always be. I wanted to be the one of the things that I did. And I want to continue to have success in everything that I do. And I always feel like I can build something. The next thing, you know, this thing that I'm building with my wife, you know, we started out as the Pretty and Punk podcast, but I think, you know, we're also building a company called Billionaire Collectibles. And like, I don't know if that'll be it, but I want, I want to build other things that supersede what I did with Tapout. I always feel like I can do something bigger. And so that's the goal. You know, I think watching Elon Musk start PayPal and then go from there and, and start SpaceX and then go from there and start Tesla and then Solar City. Like who can stop this dude? Yep. You know, everything he touches is successful. And and that though I can, you know, I can kind of sit back and go, I may never do what Elon Musk has done, although I never discount that either. Um, but I look at guys like that and go, hey, I can do some I can do that. I can do something like that. And I can continue to get better and build things that are better and bigger. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel the same way, man. I get you get me juiced up right now. So I like, but the only thing that bothers me sometimes to myself is like, shit, man, I'm 43 years old. And I could have, if I would have had the knowledge that I have now back then, like I could have just destroyed like my goals. Not, not in a bit, you know, destroy is such a negative word, but, but I mean, just like, man, it just drives me nuts sometimes. But again, I got to look back at that as that, that's fuel. It can't be regrets, you know? Things happen the way they're supposed to. I mean, if, you know, I always believe that like, if I wouldn't have got, well, I know right off the bat, if I wouldn't have been, I became a police officer because I said I was going to set out to do that. And I became a cop and then I got fired as a police officer. And if I would have never been fired, even though I thought it was the worst day of my entire life, um, I, you know, I'm a fairly grown man, you know, I'm 20 something years old and I'm, um, again, sobbing inside the locker room, like my life's over and thinking that I'm never going to be able to do anything meaningful again. And I, if that would have never happened, I would have never become, I would never be sitting here on this podcast talking to you. You know, I would never, I would have never sold tap out. Tap out would have never been probably. Um, I'd never be doing some of, I've never had this beautiful wife and family. I would never, a lot of things would not have happened in my life. And I think it takes those things happening in a certain order for you to get to where you're going to be or where you're meant to be. Yeah. And and by the way, guys, when you're listening to this, write this down, the closer in proximity you are to a setback or letdown or something like that, the less hopeful you'll feel. You'll feel more hopeless. You, the, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. 
So if you know this, and my big thing is, well, Dan, is this uh, proactive resiliency with the rocket fuel concept. I want to teach people how to know this ahead of time. Know that anything that happens to you, you can convert into fuel. So when you come into it, you actually realize it quicker. You're not stuck in it for a period, any period of time. You blow past everybody else that's stuck, paralyzed by that setback. And for me, it's changed my life. And I know I hear a lot of people talking about recovering from setbacks, uh, overcoming them, all this, but never, I, I never, never hear anybody talking about using it as rocket fuel or some kind of just like awesome injection to take you to levels that you could never imagine before. And so, man, I love, I love that story. And um, so what, what are some struggles right now or challenges you're dealing with currently? Um, I think uh, some of the things that we're going through, I, and me, this is me and my wife too, is that technology is changing constantly and you're, you're seeing some people do some really big things, you know, young kids, you know, these 20 somethings killing it on social media or uh, with their online programs. And I look at some of that and I'm like, I need to learn how to do that. Like what those guys are doing, I got to get past, you know, because I used to have a lot of people working for me and I can still, you know, find the right people. But it's, you still have to be conservative in the way that you don't want to, you know, I could, most people don't want to, if they could do it, they don't want to be doing it for you. You know what I mean? So you want to find the best. But if you go find the best, they're usually doing it for themselves. So they don't want to do it for you. So I'm, I, I've been able to come across some really good people and I'm finding those, the right people and I'm learning the right things. I'm having to fall back into myself and be, um, be a student again, you know, where I've been a, a leader and telling a lot of people what to do and uh, control, you know, 200 employees. Uh, and if I want something done, I say, hey, you know, hey, go figure that out, get this done and get it started. You know, and we have these crazy IT guys who are running, you know, millions of dollars worth of ads for us to going back to after, you know, leaving the company and starting our own company, starting that all over again and learning it. So I understand it because I don't want to go shell off a bunch of money to somebody and have them just blow through it and then it not do anything for me you know, my ROI becomes a negative ROI, you know, right, that's, right. that's not what I, I, I want to understand why are we having that situation? Because I've had that, you know, I've, I've tried to yeah. hire guys to do that. And I'm like, why are we not having the traction that we should on this product? And I've just decided to go back to becoming a student again and learning all this stuff. Yeah. Now I think there's a lot of guys out there that aren't entrepreneurs that know this stuff that we need to know as the older guys. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? I think that they just don't necessarily have the visions that we may have, but they, they love the technology. And so, you know, you got to find that, right. I found a bunch of guys and if you ever need any connections too, like I, you know, that's what I'm good at. Um, anything that works for me, I don't keep it to myself. I love helping people. So, um, we could talk offline about that. So anyway, listen, man, first of all, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity to come on yours with my wife, like I said, and, uh, and share with your audience. But if there's anything I could ever do for you, man, just reach out. Uh, I look forward to once some of these restrictions are lifted to get out to California as well, too, because I haven't been to California uh, a couple of times. So um, but anyway, is there anything uh, as far as my audience or anything that you want to share with them? One final thoughts and how can they get in touch with you? Uh, you know, you can find us on the Pretty Punk Podcast dot uh, com. You can go to, to our website. Uh, you can hit me up at, at Tap Out Punk Ass on most of my social medias or uh, my wife's is Spicy Little Pepper. Uh, on her social media and be sure to check out our podcast, man. We're trying to help entrepreneurs with kids. So any entrepreneurs out there with kids, check out our podcast We're we're doing some good stuff on there. And I, I really think it's our, we've set a goal to go out there and help people uh, get through, you know, there's a lot of people 
getting divorces and, you know, trying to decide which is more important. I know I, I went through a relationship where I let a lot of things go because I felt like running my business was the most important thing. And you come out the back end and realize that you've lost a lot of stuff and things that you thought were important, weren't as important as you thought they were. And so now it's about um, how do we keep families together while they're building these incredible businesses? And we think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help those people. I freaking love it, dude. I'm lined with that big time, man. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks brother. for having me on, Mike. You guys have been listening to the What Are You Made Of podcast with your boy, Mike C-Rock. A reminder, go subscribe on Apple, iTunes, or Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can watch these on my YouTube channel, Mike C-Rock Scirocco. And guys, go get the Rocket Fuel book, Mike C-Rock with no K, Mike C-Rock dot com forward slash book until next time be good i want to remind you that the rocket fuel book is available at my website mike crock.com forward slash book that's mike crock.com forward slash book go get yourself a copy thank you so much for your support and your listenership it means the world to me thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of what are you made of be sure to check my website out at themikecrock.com, themikecrock with no K.com, and let us know how we can help you or your business reach its full potential. Feel free to leave a review or follow me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Mike C. Rock Again, thank you for joining me and see you guys on the next episode.